If you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to be in John chapter 4 tonight. It's a privilege to be able to open the word with you tonight. And before we get started in John chapter 4, I just want to make two observations by way of introduction. First, as we examine this very familiar story um, with Jesus and the woman at the well, I want us to keep in mind that John, the Apostle John, wrote his purpose for writing his gospel. We find that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that John didn't tell us everything that Jesus did and said, but the things he wrote, he wrote so that we would know Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life through his name. And this story we look at tonight in John chapter 4 is going to contribute to that purpose in John's writing. Second, as we look at chapter 4, we can't help but notice in the immediate context that just jumps out at us, the contrast in chapter 3, and the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and the conversation he's going to have with this woman in chapter 4. I think Carson summarizes it very well when when he makes this contrast. He says, Nicodemus was learned, powerful, respected. Orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And both needed Jesus. Well, there are four sections in our passage today. And the first section is verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So verses 1 through 6, the first section, just explains that Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee, and he's going through Samaria. And John even writes the reason that he's going to make this trip. We know from chapter 3 that Jesus' popularity was rising rapidly and had already surpassed the popularity of John the Baptist. And here, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are taking note of that popularity, and so Jesus is ready to move on, to get a little further away from them, it seems like. And so he's going to go from Judea in the south, he's going to go up to Galilee in the north, and what lies right between them is Samaria. So he's going to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. It's a very natural reading of Jesus had to go through Samaria. Um... But because of the way that John often writes, where he could intend more than one thing, um, there could be another reason that John wrote Jesus had to go through Samaria, and that would be that although Jesus has as his destination Galilee, there was a a divine appointment along the way um, that that there was something in store for Jesus on this trip. And, And I think certainly both of those would be the case here. It's interesting that that the story places us at this very famous landmark, Jacob's Well, a place that uh, Jacob had dug 
thousands of years earlier. It's still a, a, a well that is providing water for the people in the region. And finally, the, the thing I would notice in this, this first part as we introduce ourselves to this story is that Jesus' humanity is on full display here. Now, the Gospel of John, it, may, it makes every effort to highlight the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, we find out in chapter 1 that he is God, he's the creator, he's life, he's light, he shares the glory of the Father, he shows us the Father. So, the Gospel of John is very clear that Jesus is God, fully God. And yet here, in this passage, we see Jesus' humanity on display, that he's sitting down at the well because he's weary from the journey. We're going to find out in a moment that the disciples have gone into town to buy food. And they left Jesus behind because he's tired. He's resting at the well. The next section, and the biggest section in our passage today, is is verses 7 through 26. And here we have just an amazing conversation between Jesus and this woman who comes out to get water. There are seven exchanges, and Jesus, in this case, he initiates the conversation, he steers the conversation, he's very purposeful with his conversation, and it is a fascinating thing to read and to, to follow along. So let's look at, at, at how it starts here in verses 7 through 9. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus initiates the conversation by politely asking the woman for a drink. But in doing so, Jesus has already violated all kinds of normal custom practices. And he is, I mean, that he would speak to a woman, um, and let alone a Samaritan woman, would have been very, very unusual for a man in that day. I mean, men did not even normally speak to their wives in public. So Jesus is starting a conversation here, far outside the cultural norms. Jesus is alone at the well, His disciples have gone into town to buy food. The woman has come out to the well. She is alone, which is interesting, too. We don't know why she's alone or why she's coming to the well at noon in the heat of the day. It would have probably been normal to go get the water when it was cooler, either in the morning or the evening. And it probably was common for the women to go together to go get the water and then walk back to town with their water. So something unusual is going on with this woman. She's come to the well alone. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And the woman is clearly taken aback by this request. She's she's making sure Jesus understands who she is. You know, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. The next exchange, Jesus continues the conversation, verses 10 through 12. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. It is amazing, the turn in the conversation here. I don't know if you just caught that, but Jesus started the conversation by asking the woman for a drink, and he followed that up by saying, well, if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink. He's completely reversed the way the conversation is going. But she clearly does not know who he is. She doesn't know him from anybody. I mean, he's just a stranger traveling through who has stopped at the well to rest. But Jesus is offering instead to her, you should have asked me for living water. What, what, what is living water just in the normal physical sense of water? Living water is moving water. It's, it's running water, whether it's, it's coming out of a spring or some type of moving water. And would, would normally be the preferred water in that it would be fresh and good water versus stagnant water. So Jesus, in some sense, is offering, you know, some, some good water here. And she takes him very literally. She's assuming that the water is going to come from this well. So she says, well, how can you do that? You don't have a bucket. The well is deep. And, and this particular well, Jacob's well, was a spring-fed well. So maybe that's where she's going with that, that she's assuming this living water is going to come out of this well. But there's no way Jesus can give her that water, right? And so she quickly realizes that um, for Jesus to be making the claims that he's making, he's really putting himself in a position where he is greater than their, her great father Jacob. See, Jacob had given them that well. When Jacob was in the land, there was no water. And so he had to dig a well to provide for his children and his livestock. And that well had provided very well for them. No pun intended there, sorry. Um, so, so Jesus, to offer this, if he's going to do something like this, that he can provide water without digging a well or without using a bucket, then he certainly must be greater than Jacob. And she gets that, but she doesn't believe it because she, she poses the question as a negative. She says, um, verse 12, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? And the expectation of her question is, is that the answer is no. Well, Jesus continues the conversation in verses 13 through 15, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So Jesus now is making it clear that the water he's talking about is not the water from this well. If you drink from this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But the water that Jesus is offering, you'll never get thirsty again. And Jesus even goes so far to say that the water he's talking about is water that springs up within for eternal life. So I think with where we're reading now in hindsight, we can see where Jesus is going with this. He's talking about something that's leading to eternal life. He's not just talking about physical water. But again, 
She takes him very literally. And she says, I want this water. I don't want to have to come back to this well and draw again. So she's all for it. Now, once again, I I think we have a pretty amazing contrast between this woman and Nicodemus. Because in both cases, they took Jesus very literally. And in both cases, they didn't understand what he was talking about at all. With Nicodemus, Jesus told him, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, the only thing he could think of was, well, I must have to be born, go into my mother's womb and be born a second time. So so Nicodemus didn't understand, took him very literally. Here the woman is taking him very literally. She doesn't understand. But the contrast is Nicodemus doesn't understand. And it just, he will not accept what Jesus is saying. That he would have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He refuses to accept that. He refuses to believe. This woman doesn't understand at this point, but she's embracing it. She's saying, I want this water. She doesn't know what it is, but as she's listening to Jesus, she's asking for this water. So here even we have a contrast between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Jesus now, now that he's got her, he's got her hooked now, right? She wants what he's offering. So Jesus now is going to take an abrupt turn in the conversation and stop talking about this water. And now he's going to talk about her personal life. So in verses 16 and 17, just out of the blue, he tells her, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. So it's, it's a very brief exchange here. You know, it's, it's like, all right, go get your husband, come back here, then we'll see about getting you this water. It's kind of what, where it leaves you, you thinking it's going. And, and her simple answer is, I don't have a husband. Which then leads us to, Um, the next exchange where Jesus goes much more deeply into her personal life and in revealing who he is that is offering this living water. So let's look at the second part of verse 17. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus acknowledges what you said. It's true. But you've had five husbands. See, now all of a sudden, Jesus knows everything about her. Now, this um, could not have been a guess, okay? I mean, this is very unusual. And we don't know the circumstances of this woman exactly, why she's had five husbands? Has she had five husbands that have passed away? Has she had five husbands divorce her? Because in that day and age, the woman could not divorce her husband. The man would divorce the woman. So how is it that she's had five husbands? We don't know. But we know enough. Because Jesus has clearly pointed out her sin by saying, and the man you're now with is not your husband. So we know enough to know that he is calling out her sin. And she recognizes that he knows all of this stuff about her. And her response to me is really quite amazing because she doesn't seem to get offended at all. She's amazed that he knows all these things. So look at her response in verse 19. 
Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So her only conclusion is, I mean, if you know that, then God must have told you, you must be a prophet. Which is not a bad response, I don't think. Okay? She sees something is at work here. And, and to me, it, it's interesting here, the similarity here between John chapter 1, where Jesus kind of did the same thing with Nathaniel, except it was kind of the opposite knowing about his personal life, as, as we'll see here. If you just flip back to chapter 1, look what Jesus did with Nathaniel. Philip has, has come to follow Jesus, and Philip goes out and gets Nathaniel. And so now as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, they have never met before. In verse 47, Jesus says to Nathanael, Here is a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Jesus has displayed this ability before to know people. To know people exhaustively in, in a way that's very impressive. And it worked with Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, you must be the son of God. You must be the king of Israel. Okay, Jesus has done the same thing with this woman in chapter 4. Now, her review is not as quite the same review as Nathaniel's, but she still understands Jesus' knowledge of her. And so she understands that he's a prophet. And then for whatever reason, she abruptly changes the subject and seems to just ask the theological question that's pressing on her mind. Hey, I'm talking to a prophet. I've got a question. I don't know. It's, it's hard to know. But in verse 20, she wants to know, you know, our fathers say to worship on this mountain. The Jews say to worship in Jerusalem. And she's calling on this prophet to settle it for her. Which leads us to the sixth exchange between Jesus and this woman. And a sixth exchange where... Jesus is going to very clearly explain to her what true worship is all about. And he's going to use the word worship seven times in his answer. So look at verse 21. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants or seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is telling her, let me, let me answer your question. Sure, okay. Samaritans, you don't know what you're worshiping. Jews, we know what we're worshiping. Salvation is from the Jews, okay? We've had all of these prophets where God has revealed himself to the Jews. There's going to be a Messiah that comes through the Jewish line who is going to save the people from their sins. And so salvation is from the Jews. So that part of it is settled, okay? Quick answer, the Jews have it right. But in a sense, it's irrelevant in a lot of ways because that may be true now, but there is an hour coming... And when John talks about an hour coming, he's 
usually referring to Jesus' death on the cross. There's an hour coming where it's not going to be either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It's going to be in spirit and truth. Oh, and even to make it more confusing, this hour is coming and it's already here. So just, just think about this for this woman now as she's trying to figure out where do I worship? She is talking face to face to the Son of God, to Jesus. She has no greater opportunity to worship than the one that she has right now. She's never had a better chance on that mountain or in Jerusalem than to be able to talk to the face to face to the Son of God. It's not about the location. What are some other things we find about this true worship here? Well, we see that the object of true worship is worshiping the Father. Which, if you're worshiping the Father, then that assumes the Son. Because worship can only be accomplished through the person and work of the Son. What he came to earth to do. That hour to which he's headed. And it has to be done in spirit and truth. It's the spirit that gives life. So the answer to true worship is a Trinitarian answer. The Father is the object of worship. The work of, of, of making it possible for sinners to worship God, truly worship God, is accomplished through the work of the Son on the cross. And it's only done by the Spirit, as the Spirit gives life. So the woman, in verse 25 She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And her answer, in a way, is just great, okay? So it's not about this mountain. It's not about Jerusalem. It's about this hour that's coming when worship will be in spirit and truth. Okay, do you know how she connects the dots? She's thinking, oh, that must be when the Messiah comes. I know he's coming. Okay, and here's her description of the Messiah. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Which, by the way, what had Jesus just done with her personal life? He had told her everything about herself. So she doesn't understand necessarily quite all the way, but she is, she's kind of tracking She's knowing, she knows that the expectation is this future Messiah who will, who will explain everything. Well, Jesus ends the conversation, at least for the moment, in verse 26. And he says these words, I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Did you get that? Jesus just told her he is the Messiah. I mean, that, that this would happen right here, right now, is, is really astounding. And, and one of the commentaries, the, the way that they, uh, the, the parallel they gave to how incredible this, this event is, that Jesus would tell this to this Samaritan woman, is to think about how crazy it is that the Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, okay, The Messiah was born in a stable. Unfathomable, right? 
Well, that's how unfathomable it is that Jesus would reveal himself as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. We've, we've gone through chapters here where Jesus has performed signs and wonders and he's taught and people are coming to him, they're believing on him, and to our knowledge, he has never told anyone, I am the Messiah. They're drawing conclusions based on what they see him do and, and what they hear him say. But Jesus outright tells this woman, I am the Messiah, the one you are talking to. Well, their conversation ends there. And the next section of our passage is an interlude from verses 27 through 38, where the woman goes back into town, the disciples come back from the town, and there's going to be a little conversation there before we get to the end, where once again, the, the conversation will go back to the Samaritans. Okay, so this is kind of an interlude here, beginning at verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? So the disciples come back. They see Jesus talking to this woman. They are just as amazed as she was that Jesus would talk to her. And it seems like the emphasis with the woman was, she can't believe he's talking to a Samaritan. You know, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. The disciples come back and they can't believe he's talking to a woman. But they don't ask him about it. Verse 28, then the woman left her jar, went into town and told the men, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. So the woman abandons her jar at the well, the very thing she came out to get. She leaves her water right there at the well. She goes into town. She's on a new mission now. And and she tells the men in the city, this guy just told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And again, we're getting those words again that the Messiah is going to be the one who's going to explain everything. Kind of that language. And, you know, knowing what we know about this woman, it wouldn't seem like she's a real credible witness, right? But that doesn't seem to matter. And whether it's because of the object of her witness, that she's talking about someone who can explain everything, or whether it's because the woman going back into town is not the same woman that came out of town. We, we don't know exactly why, but for whatever reason, as the woman goes back and she tells the people in the town what happened, they're all coming out to see Jesus. They're going to all come see for themselves. Verse 31, in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? So the disciples, they're getting a little frustrated with Jesus. They went into town to buy food while Jesus took a break and sat down at the well. They come back with the food and Jesus won't eat it. And to make things worse, he's talking to a woman at the well. And now the woman's gone back into town. Jesus still isn't eating the food. And Jesus tells them, well, I have other food. And the only thing they think of, well, did somebody else bring him food? Verse 34. 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. See, Jesus was refreshed. He, he arrived at this well worn out from the journey. He's tired. He's sitting down. He's taking a break. But this woman came out and he talked to her and he was doing the will of the Father. And he was refreshed and he was nourished and he was energized. Again, the disciples, just like the woman, taking Jesus very literally with this whole food thing, and he's having to explain to them, no, I'm talking about a different kind of food. I'm talking about doing the will of the Father. So in verses 35 through 38, Jesus moves from talking to the disciples about true food, and he talks to them a little bit about the harvest and some principles of sowing and reaping. Verse 35, don't you say there are still four more months, then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. So the disciples understand the principles of sowing and reaping. And usually when you sow something, you have to wait a certain number of months before you can reap. And Jesus is saying, we don't have to do this that this time. We don't need to wait four more months. Look, the fields are already ready to be harvested. And whether at this point the disciples can see these Samaritans coming out of town on their way to Jesus, or whether Jesus just knows they're coming, There is a field ready to be harvested. And in this case, one sowed and another will reap. And it doesn't really matter who does the sowing and who does the reaping. They will rejoice together just that it gets done. It seems to me that in this circumstance, most likely the woman was the one sowing as she went into town and told them about this one who told them who could explain everything. He told her everything about her. So they're coming out to check it out for themselves, and Jesus is about to reap a huge harvest. And he even includes his disciples in this, that they're going to in some way participate in reaping this that they haven't even labored for. And they get to enjoy the blessings and the benefit of this harvest. And they haven't even labored for it. Well, the Samaritans come back, and they're, or the Samaritans come out of the town and they come to Jesus. And our final section here in this passage is verses 39 through 42. And here we see the response of the Samaritans. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Those key words again. I mean, this is, this is like her definition of Messiah. The one who said who can explain everything. Or the one who told me everything I ever did. That's Messiah. So therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So Jesus, as we start out the story, he's in Judea. He's going to Galilee because of his popularity, and the Pharisees are hearing too much about him, and he's ready to move on. So he's going to go through Samaria, and now he's going to stay in Samaria two days because there is this bountiful harvest that Jesus is enjoying. Many more 
believed because of what he said. Verse 41, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Many from the Samaritan town of Sychar believe in Jesus. I mean, Jesus should have just been passing through to get to Galilee, right? Like, he shouldn't have even bothered to talk to anybody, right? These are nobodies. They're outcasts. They're not true Jews. And yet, look at the response. Look at the harvest. Many believed, not just because of what the woman said. So there was something about her that was convincing, but even more so because they have heard what Jesus has said. And this final declaration of Jesus, we know that you really are the Savior of the world. There it is again. It, it always amazes me, and, and Pastor Brent's been talking about this in, in Corinthians, you know, how it's, it, it's not um, the people who are rich or in power or all of these lofty things. It's often the weak, the foolish, the ignorant, that they're the ones that get it. And here, the Samaritans seem to understand better than anyone that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So two incredible thoughts from chapter 4 is that Jesus reveals himself, explicitly reveals himself to be the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans, they identify Jesus as the Savior of the world. You know, I, I find it interesting, as we have gone through these last few chapters, there's, look at Jesus' travels. Chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem clearing out the temple. Chapter 3, Jesus is going around the Judean countryside teaching and baptizing, although we found out it's not really him baptizing, it's his disciples. And now he's in Samaria reaping a bountiful harvest. It sounds an awful lot like Acts 1-8 where Jesus commissioned his disciples and you're going to begin in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria in the uttermost part of the earth. Do you see Jesus' progression here? Whether that's intentional or not, but it's pretty amazing that Jesus is starting right there at the center in Jerusalem, and now he is sharing this message with these outcast people who have fully embraced him. Well, I think as, as we look at the Gospel of John and what we have seen in these first four chapters— This lines up with what John the Baptist himself said when he saw Jesus coming and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or what about the Apostle John when he wrote in John 3, 16 and 17, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. He sent his son to save the world, and the Samaritans get it. Jesus is the savior of the world. Well, I'm sure there are lots of things we could say from this brief journey through these first 42 verses, and I know that was very quick, but I think that Two applications just really stand out to me. 
First, we learn from Jesus that we shouldn't look down on anyone. Every person is made in the image of God and should be treated as such. We must not look down on someone of a different gender, ethnicity, religion, political point of view, social standing, economic standing, or any other category that might divide us. Second, Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. There is no other hope. Are we pointing people to the Savior? We don't have to be a perfect witness or have some formula memorized just perfectly to catch people. We can simply talk to people around us, and when we do, tell them about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is mighty to save. So let's look for opportunities to share Christ this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us that you have revealed yourself to us, especially through your son, Jesus. Father, what an example in the way he lived his life, always doing the will of the Father, showing us how we were intended to live. But ultimately, he was living for that hour when he would pay for the sins of the world so that we might have eternal life. So, Father, we can only rejoice in what you have done through your Son and say thank you. And, Father, would you also help us to be ready to share that message with anyone we might come in contact with? What a mighty Savior. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.